it's my job to really be that seed planter for people and to empower them and show them that they already have the tools that they need to show up fully and to even, by the way, show up not so fully in this world, which is also okay, because then we're able to really complete that journey simply by just showing up. Validation is for parking. It's not for humans. We're not broken. The world doesn't need another self-help course. All we need to do is show up. Welcome to the Rebel Souls Podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. Oh, this episode is so juicy. I just have to dig right in and start telling you about it. You know, you guys hear me talk all the time about how we show up in the world how we show up as our highest and best selves, how we show up authentically and courageously and purposefully, and how we rebel for the impact we want to have in the world, right? And I've talked about the new definition of ROI, ripples of impact. And Shelly Tegelski, who I have a conversation with in this episode, she epitomizes showing up and just throwing those rocks in the water for those ripples of impact. She's so inspiring in the work that she's doing around modern day mindfulness, or actually she calls it modern life mindfulness, you know, for real people like us who have a lot going on and who wear a lot of hats in our world and who aren't, you know, monks and gurus sitting in flowing robes on mountains, that kind of mindfulness. And she calls herself a self-care activist. She's a first-time author of a new book that's coming out next week, literally next week, you guys, you've got to go into the show notes and click the link to pre-order. It'll be in your hot little hands soon. The book is called Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. It's part manifesto, part memoir, sound familiar? <laughs> and part really practical guide to how we can apply mindfulness and radical self-care to ourselves, but then take it even further. She takes us on a journey from me to we to us, which is super profound. Everything we talk about, she just continually reminds me and us that we're all connected, that how we show up for ourselves is how we show up for others. That's a choice we have to make. And the really interesting thing about Shelly is that she comes from a background really similar to mine. 20 years in the corporate world as vice president, 
president of Fortune 100, no, Fortune 1000 organizations. This is a woman who comes from the kind of background a lot of us are really familiar with and tripped into mindfulness early on as a way to make that crazy corporate life more sustainable, to create a little space for herself, to bring that same space to her team and then her broader community in South Florida. And then it kind of became her thing because she realized she had climbed this mountain and she felt success empty, not successful. Yeah, I know that like was like a dagger in my heart. Obviously, I know that story well. Some of you might be feeling that right now. And so Shelly ultimately did something similar to what I did. She walked away from the corporate world and she followed her passion in mindfulness. And it's led her... I mean, I can't even read all of the accolades. I mean, she has been named... I mean, her work has been featured in some incredible places. CNN, Forbes, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, Upworthy. President Joe Biden blurbed her book and named her as one of the individuals that is restoring the soul of America. By the way, Chelsea Handler wrote the foreword for Shelley's book. So when you order it, you have that to look forward to as well. Her book launch, which she mentions at the end of the episode, is going to be on October 13th in the New York area, in New York City. So if you're in the New York area, we'll make sure that we put a link in the show notes. It's uh, Her book launch is going to be on October 13th at the 92nd Street Y. And Deborah Messing, you guys remember, may remember from Grace, Will and Grace, and also Ariana Huffington, who uh, Shelly's very close to and who's a huge champion of Shelly's work, are all going to be at the launch. So incredible opportunity if you happen to be in the area or like me, might just be interested in finding myself in the area next week. So Shelly, I mean, unbelievably incredible. She's gone on since leaving corporate America to found Pandemic of Love at the beginning of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Shelly realized the need for a mutual aid community to benefit people who have needs that they can't meet and people who are ready to step up in their community to give and literally connected. Like I need X, I have Y to give and connected those folks in their communities. It was human connection in action. It was showing up from a place of love. And Shelly gives us phenomenal questions. You guys know how much I love questions. You know, what if I was doing this from a place of love is one that she reminded me, reminds all of us of in this conversation. And she, I'm just, I'm, I'm so blown away by her work because she's now taken mindfulness and this self-care activism, radical self-care into communities that need it most, into underserved communities. She's on a mission to make mindfulness and self-care available to all. Not just those of us who, you know, I think have 
self-care has become sort of, you know, come to look like Lululemon pants and really expensive, you know, green matcha chai lattes or whatever those are. And that's not what it is. And she brings us back to earth with what it is and how we can help. And a lot of her work is in those underserved communities and with people on the front lines, aid workers, volunteers, you know, staff of social justice organizations, people who really need resilience training and have true compassion fatigue and burnout. And she brings that all to us. And I'm sure it doesn't uh, surprise you at all that she's been named by mindful.org, mindful magazine and many others as the 10 most pow- one of the 10 most powerful women in mindfulness. So we get to benefit from hearing her story, how she, what led her on this journey and how she had the courage to walk away, follow her passion and now show up in such a powerful way impacting lives every day. She's a woman on a mission that will inspire you. And what I love about Shelly, she makes it so real. It's real in our lives today, whatever you're facing. And it's real when we think about the macro issues our country and our world are facing today. So I hope you guys settle in. This is a long conversation. And I want to thank you in advance for your grace and your patience because the content is amazing. The conversation is juicy. We get so much of Shelly's heart and soul. And I was having serious internet issues when we recorded this. So thank you for your grace in where there are little glitches. We're trying to clean up as much as possible to make this (laughs) a reasonable listening experience. And I think it is but it's not as clean as I would like it to be. And yet I didn't want to miss the opportunity to have this conversation with Shelly and to share it with all of you. So let's dive in to my soul sister namesake and badass woman having a serious impact in this world and on all of us. Enjoy. Hey, Shelly, it's so good to be chatting with you again. Welcome to the Rebel Souls community. Thank you so much for having me. And I am always in favor of being in the company of somebody that shares my name. Absolutely. The only place we differ and we've got a little argument going is about the E situation. (laughs) To E or not to E, to bastardize what Shakespeare said, right? (laughs) Definitely. I'm a fan of keeping things simple, but you know, sometimes, you know, you need to have that extra identifier. That's right. It's the thing that makes each of us unique, right? We own it. I love it. I love it. We'll rock and roll. And so it's, so our name, we've got our name in common. We both talk a whole lot about living from our soul. We both care a lot about radical self-care, radical self-commitment, mindfulness. This is going to be a super fun conversation. And we both have in common, the reason I met you in the first place is through Justin Michael Williams, who was on the podcast and one of my all-time favorite humans. So I'm really, I feel so grateful that he introduced us. Definitely. Yeah. He's one of my favorite humans as well. So we have that in common too. 
awesome. Yeah. And we're, we're only going to keep discovering more and more of what I know you and I, we share a lot. And as you know, I've told you this before, I'll say it again. And you're no stranger to our Rebel Souls community because I've been bragging about your book already. I'm like pre-order, pre-order, shot something out my newsletter probably a couple of months ago because I've just become a huge fan of your work. I mean, Rebel Souls is all about people who are living their truth, right? Who are rebelling for who they are, what they want, and the impact they want to have in the world. And oh my God, sister, you're having a big fucking impact in the world. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm... I'm I'm grateful for that, but I I actually feel like the impact that I have in the world is by being a seed planter, really somebody who is um, not necessarily doing the work on behalf of other people, but sort of just shining a light, planting a seed with them, and then allowing them to take those seeds on their own journey, right? To empower them to understand that they could put that seed in their proverbial back pocket and discover it like you do uh, discover a $5 bill when you go to wear those pants like years later. And you're like, oh my God, you feel like so rich because you got like that $5 found money or people who are going to plant it and put it in like a little pot and allow it to just grow, you know, only so much. And then those that are literally going to build and plant huge forests uh, Mm -hmm. from that one seed, right? So everybody's on their own kind of concurrent journey. But the idea here is, is that I feel that it's my job to really be that seed planter for people and to empower them and show them that they already have the tools that they need uh, to do the work and to show up fully and to even, by the way, show up not so fully in this world, which is also okay, because then we're able to really complete that journey simply by just showing up. Yes. I. So you reminded me, it's so funny, this was sitting right in front of me. You may not be able to read this, but I know you're a fan of writing stuff on paper and posting it. So mine says, every day I'm planting acorns. And the second one says that some of which will become oaks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's such a powerful reminder. Like what? That's like giving us the tools to live our lives, like plant those seeds, plant those acorns, and you're giving us hope and faith and reminding us that it's all inside of us, right? That is literally the most important thing we can do in life. That's it. Just show up. And it's so funny that you say acorns because one of my favorite comedians, Sarah Silverman, does this incredible sketch about squirrels. (laughs) And she calls them these like neurotic, rodents that are on cocaine or something. She's like, isn't it wonderful that God or the universe or whatever you believe in created these like creatures that are so neurotic that they have to collect like all the acorns that they possibly can. They spend like hours upon hours, you know, before the winter comes and they actually, you know, bury all of those acorns because they're so neurotic that they think somebody's going to like steal it from them. And she says, that it's so funny because 80% of the acorns that squirrels bury, they never find. And her punchline is, which is really mind-blowing because it's funny and, and just also incredibly amazing and shows you how wonderful nature is, is that what happens to those 80% of acorns? Like, think about it. They become trees. 
What a gift, right? Right. Like they're the planters of like our forests are these crazy rodent squirrels who she says are like so incredibly neurotic. And so really, I mean, I think that is a testament to how we also don't know the impact that we have on a person on the world, whether it's through a kind word or a smile or, you know, a a gesture, uh, whether we do something anonymously, whether we do something really incredible and huge for someone. But I think it's the idea that if we can consistently and persistently just keep showing up for other people in small ways and in big ways alike, that the ripple effect of that, those forests that get planted are probably ones that we may never, we may never even know, like that we were somehow a contributor to that. Yeah. And you're, oh, this, it's just a powerful reminder. I always say I do this podcast because it is a mirror and a reflection for me every day in every conversation I have of what the universe wants to remind me of in that moment. And it's such a powerful reminder because this week has been a funky week and I've been like, am I even making a difference? Like, I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes you're just like, I'm like, I've got this big mission and I'm showing up powerfully and I'm planting those fucking acorns. And like, is anyone, you know, is it having, not as anybody listening, it's like, is it having an impact? Because we don't always see it. You're right. And it reminds us of like, it's not about the external validation. It's about, am I living true to my truth and my values? Period, end of story. And showing up in that way in the world, right? Right, totally. Validation is for parking. It's not for humans. Oh, okay. Like, that is the best line ever. (laughs) Holy shit. Validation is for parking, not for humans. Uh, Amen. With five exclamation points behind it. You, by the way, I'm going to take a little detour because I usually start with that my signature question, what are you rebelling for? But we've got to get into this for a second and then I'll take, I'll back us up. Um, I, I'm a lover of language. I'm a creator of language. It's, it's one of my, it's one of my superpowers. And it's the thing that gets me all lit up when I hear yummy, juicy, unique language, turns of phrase, those kind of things, like what you just said that just go, you know, like give you whiplash. Cause you're like, pause. And you do this all the time. Like one of my favorite, I have a love hate relationship with social as many of us do. And I have to say your feed and in particular, these profound and pithy phrases that you come up with and share, like what you just shared are amazing. I wrote a bunch of them down because I'm like, do do these just come to you? Like, I want to, I want to know more, like dig inside Shelly T. Like what's going on there? I wrote down one. If life came with a GPS, it would mostly say recalculating. And I was like, (laughs) boom, I was like virtually fist bumping you. (laughs) That's so funny. Oh my God. Are these, are these like your, like your, your, like wisdom, your insights, and they're so real and raw and you don't try to make them pretty and perfect. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, well, we can, and that's really the point, right? That's, that's how I try to show up in the world. I know I'm going to be imperfect. Uh, I think that social media, uh, cause I also have this love hate relationship with it. Um, has I'm trying to use my feed for good, right? To use mm-hmm. it on behalf of 
people in need through pandemic of love, all the stuff that I post in my stories to try to, you know, help people with their bills and just their essentials and remind people that there's still really a lot of people in need at this time and that things are not back to normal for so many people and that they weren't normal to begin with before. But the idea is that, you know, our feeds tend to be, especially in my space, right? The space I live in, right? Which is just the wellness, if you will, the wellness space um, is really for a lot of people, like a highlight reel. And it's not, doesn't include the outtakes. It's like these perfect yoga poses and these perfect pictures of like people sitting with their hands over their heart um, in a beautiful setting with their eyes closed. And, you know, it's just, that's not real life. Real life is like me sitting on the bathroom floor meditating because there's too much noise in the house and I need to get away from people. <laughs> and so that and it might only be five part. minutes because maybe you can only steal away for five minutes, right? Not a Zen 45 minutes in a flowing white robe. Totally, totally. And, and I feel like that it needs to be relatable. Like we've got to bring wellness, health, the pursuit of self-care, the pursuit of communal care needs to be reclaimed by the people. It's, 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 we've got to get it out of the hands of brands who have hijacked it and created this industrial wellness complex that we're living in. And we've got to, and, and, and I think that goes back to what are you rebelling against? So I guess that's my, what I'm yeah. rebelling against. I am all about no barrier to entry and to making mm-hmm. sure that uh, wellness is for the haves as much as it is for the have not right? Because it's been for the haves for so long. And it's not about the $120 yoga pants. And it's not about, you know, the the $8 green tea lattes. And it's not about, um, you know, the, the $45 spin class. It's just not. And it, we've got to like reclaim what it means and recognize that it is for everybody. And it has to be because if, if even in a society, in a community, if even one of us is not well, then the community is not well. And this country is not well right now. This world is not well right now. The, the, the planet is not well. Um, and so unless all of us like kind of show up in that way for each other, not just for ourselves and not just working on the inner work, right? Because um, the inner work stops at our borders. Yeah. And you could argue, well, you're doing the inner work, you're showing up as a better version of yourself. And it's like, yeah, you could argue that, but I know a lot of people who've been spending eons doing inner work and they're still standing at the precipice of like showing up in the world. And like, I'm wait, I'm kind of waiting really patiently to see like, okay, you've gone to therapy for 20 years now. Like you're, you know, and you're, you've been meditating for 15 and you're doing, you can bend into a pretzel and you can practically be in Cirque du Soleil. Like now what, what are you doing for this world? What are you doing for the community? you know, how does that translate? How does the inner work translate into the outer world? Right? Oh, it's so exactly. It's like to, to what end, right? Because we aren't on this planet alone. We are all one. We are interconnected. Our actions impact each other and how we show up matters. And I love that, you know, that's what you, so much of what you talk about. So how do you how do you, like, where do we start? Right. So one thing I love that you call yourself like a self-care activist. 
That's a powerful phrase. And, and I think when you and I first met and first spoke, I said to you, I struggle with the phrase self-care because I I like to think of like radical self-commitment, which means I understand what are my values? What boundaries do I need to create? What, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? What space do I need to give myself? What are my non-negotiables in my rituals? It's not all spas and bubble baths and, you know, chipping manicures as, as mine is, right? But how do you think about it? Like what is, when you, as an activist for self-care, what does self-care mean to you? And how do you teach that to the people, like you said, who really need it, like who are on the front lines? Well, I mean, I think we've got to like take this, we've got to give credit to where really the self-care movement started to um, get wind in its sails, right? We, and we have to hearken back to uh, the feminist movement and the civil rights movement really self-care was an act of Mm self-preservation at that time because, you know, women didn't have a voice as it pertained and still to this day, by the way, but a little bit more so maybe we could say we've like taken three steps forward, two steps back, but like, you know, as it pertained to their, to their bodies and like just, just basic fundamental care and healthcare. And then think about, you know, marginalized communities, think about the BIPOC community, the black communities, in this country, we're not getting, and the still to this day are, you know, there's, there is medical apartheid in this country. We've got to name it. Right. Um, and so when you kind of take those two forces together, self-care became an act of self-preservation. And then it also became a political force. You know, Audre Lorde wrote that, uh, self-care is an act of resistance. It's an act of political resistance. And it became a way for the community, sort of by the people, for the people to say like, well, if you're not going to take care of me, you know, government or municipality or healthcare system or, you know, or whoever, company, like, right? Yeah, <laughs> we're going to take care of ourselves because we have to in order to survive. It's an act of survival. And what self-care has become now is people are like, again, hijacking the term of self-care. It's become an act of like thriving. And it's not that it's not that, right? But for most people, for most people, for the average, let's not even talk about the whole world. Let's just talk about America or North America. The average American self-care is still very much an act of survival. And their basic needs, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. their fundamental basic needs, there's food insecurity, right? There's time poverty. There's data poverty. There's, I mean, we can go on and on and on with the basic shelter, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you're talking about self-care in that light, and you're, you're talking to those individuals and just saying like, well, you just need to align your values better, or you need to create boundaries. And it's like, that to me feels like so out of touch with the norm, with the average person and what they're going through, you know? It's like, first, help me meet my basic needs. Get me to a place where I have enough. And then from that place of enough, then I can thrive. But first, it's about survival. I've got to survive. Get me to a place of enough. And then that's a place of equity, right? We talk about equity so much. There's a word that's like thrown around uh, in this zeitgeist, this cultural and political zeitgeist that we're living in. 
And it's like, what does that even mean? So I dream of this world where, you know, where equity really truly means um, that everybody has enough, that enough is a feast and that we are able to take care of each other, that we're able to create this, this by the people for the people, you know, great nonprofits want to help. Fantastic. Do, you know, governments want to kind of formalize this fine, you know, but the point of the matter is, is that we don't have to be reliant on those systems. We can create these systems that are based on things like mutual aid, which is what pandemic of love is, right? It's a mutual aid organization. That's not a nonprofit. It's a nonprofit disruptor actually. And we've been able to prove that we can be way more efficient uh, and direct in terms of direct giving uh, and, and help people where they need it and when they need it. And without the forms and the bureaucracy and the overhead, because it's done on a hyper-local level and it's really, it really takes people back to this magical time that I'm sure your grandparents told you about and certainly that my grandparents told me about and that a lot of people talk about from a nostalgic perspective called back in the day. And it's like back in the day, people knew their neighbors, right? You may know that your neighbor's name is Bob, but do you really know what Bob's going through? Do you know if he was furloughed in the last 14 months? Do you know if he's eaten into all of his savings? Do you know if he's behind on things or if his lights are on at home or if he, you know, he's, he's got some sort of a chronic illness, like we just don't know about each other. And I think that that's part of it. Part of it is about, you know, self-care is about building equity. It's about um, creating these safety nets within communities that really kind of liken and take us back to that nostalgic period of back in the day. Um, But it's, 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 it's about, I think, reclaiming um, our power to actually, um, you know, just show up for each other and know that because we're showing up for each other, that people are going to show up for us, you know, that every human being on this planet has something they can offer regardless of their socioeconomic status. And that every person, regardless of their socioeconomic status has something they need. And if we can just like match those people together, we can create equity. And that was the profound and simple brilliance behind Pandemic of Love. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know, if you've never heard of Pandemic Pandemic of Love, Shelly's the founder. We're going to put a link in the show notes. And you really created this idea of mutual aid. I don't think it existed before you created that, right? Well, mutual aid's actually been around since the late 1800s. It actually... Was there, yeah, so the concept, right, of mutual aid. Uh, the concept of mutual aid was um, was actually um, written about first by a Russian uh, social scientist uh, by the name of Kropotnik. And he was really concerned about uh, the rise of Darwinism in not just, not science, like biological science, hard sciences, but in soft sciences because people were taking Darwin's theories of like survival of the fittest and applying them to things like capitalism. So it was kind of like, oh, well, survival of the fittest, you can't make it in this world, like too bad for you, you know? And that's kind of 
this oligarchy that we're living in today, mm-hmm. in a sense, you know, uh, a lot of people have that kind of attitude when you see these huge inequities now um, between between the, the mega billionaires and people that, you know, have to work three jobs and still can't afford rent. So, so Kropotnik basically wrote a book in Russian called Mutual Aid. And his idea was that we've got to like take care of each other, right? And that it's not about just survival of the fittest. Yes, biologically, that's true. And certainly can be, be applied to social scientists. But it was a poignant reminder as well for everyone that when you look at ecosystems, when you look at nature as it exists, yes, eventually we evolve when there's survival of the fittest, but in its truest form, in the present form, there's so much symbiosis, right? There's so much cooperation taking place so that in order to survive and in many cases to thrive, nature has to depend on each other. Right. The butterfly needs the flower. The flower needs, you know, the fertilizer and the rain the, and on and on. And it the just, oaks apparently need the squirrels. <laughs> the oaks need the squirrels. Exactly. Right. And 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 in some cases, even even fire like has a purpose. Right. In terms of like helping to to regenerate, um, regenerate our forests. And so there's just, you know, there's this symbiosis that takes place. And I think when we just focus on like one sliver of Darwin's theory, we completely tend to forget that there's so many other laws of nature. If you think about um, mutual aid in its most recent form or recent evolution, right? Now that we're talking about Darwinian theory, you, you see that mutual aid exists in a way where, you know, there's like a Venmo account, like after the, the, the Texas, the storms happened in Texas, the winter storms, you know, there were tons of mutual aid Venmos and PayPals and cash apps that, that you would just send money to. And with the knowing or the hoping that that money would then get reallocated to individuals within the community that were in need, but not necessarily knowing like how much was being sent or what it was being used for, et cetera. And so what makes Pandemic of Love different, where it differentiates is that it's mutual aid combined with proximity, with human connection. And as a meditation teacher, right, as a mindfulness teacher who studies and practices metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is loving kindness meditation and the cultivation of compassion, I know through personal experience, but also through my own practice, that, you know, human connection is incredibly important and that in order for us to stop othering one another, which is taking place immensely in this country and yeah. world that we're living in right now, we need to have proximity, proximity within our communities. So what we need to have happen is that, yes, we need mutual aid, but wouldn't it be great if we could actually directly connect the individuals in need with the people who want to fulfill that need. And so that's basically what Pandemic of Love did is we we had two forms, very simple forms, the give help form and the get help form. And when somebody would say, I need groceries and somebody would say, I can donate groceries or a grocery gift card, rather than just anonymously like having that person donate to Pandemic of Love and then us reallocating the money, we just said, great, let's connect the two of you. It warranted having a conversation. 
And some people had one conversation that was like one and done and that's okay. And the, the, the need was met, but some people wound up getting into these beautiful relationships and they had these amazing friendships that are still going on today because it was also an opportunity for, for the donor, for example, to make the person in need feel seen and heard, which sometimes is more valuable than what they were even tangibly giving them, right? Yeah, it's so powerful. And it goes back to what you were saying early in the conversation about how we choose to show up, right? It's only a part of the equation to do the inner work. And then it's like, okay, we're showing up for ourselves. How can we show up for others as well? And you were like, just reminding us of our interconnectedness. We are not separate. We are not other. And it reminded me as you were talking of one of your really profound phrases on your social feed. I might butcher the words, so correct me if I get this wrong, but this rocked me. You said, stop telling someone to pull themselves up by the bootstraps when they don't even have boots. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. And that's actually a phrase from a, from a Martin Luther King speech. I was taken from that. He didn't, he, he said something to that effect, right? I kind of took it and shortened it, um, to make it fit on a piece of paper and kind of have that effect. But yeah, I mean, I think we, we forget that we like yell at people and tell them like, take care of yourself or why can't you do this? And it's exactly so like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you're like, but I don't even have a pair of boots. So how am I even give me a pair of boots and then I'm happy. Then you can yell at me and tell me, why don't you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? But we're not, we're not in a level playing field. And I think we've got to wake up and start realizing like, we're not in a level playing field. And what can we each individually do to help contribute to a more level playing field? And we can, and, and a lot of people will say, and I'm not saying that they're apathetic about it, but I think it can be daunting and overwhelming to think about it that way. So you think, well, I can't, that's too big of a problem for me to solve, right? Yeah, where do I even start is the question that comes to my mind, right? Totally, it's like thinking about global warming. You're like, well, what can I do? You know, like we're too far gone. Like we can't change that. Well, but I actually, you know, I lean into a lot of the Buddhist principles and teachings that I've studied. And there's a beautiful uh, proverb that says, tend to the area of your garden that you can reach. So if every single person just tended to the area of the garden that they could reach, right? Just your little circle of influence, if you will, and just make it the most beautiful and magical garden of Eden that you can make it. And yeah, fine. Stay in that bubble, make it beautiful. Eventually, you know, the ripple will be felt if everybody tended to their garden in that way those circles become, they overlap eventually. They bleed into each other and they feed off of each other. And so, you know, I I am a very big fan of kind of thinking about things on a a hyper-local and kind of a micro level of what can we do and just trust that even just by doing that, we are literally throwing a, a pebble into a pond that's creating ripples that, go back to what we originally said when we first started this conversation, those ripples eventually reach shores that we'll never know what shores they reached. And some of those ripples may become gigantic waves. I love it. We speak such similar languages and I'm learning so much from you. And 
I love talking about the new ROI, which is ripples of impact, in my opinion. It's exactly what you're talking about. So yes, I get that in the business world, in certain worlds, there's the very monetary, financially incentivized return on investment. And there's return on investment with our energy and our time and everything. There's also this all-important ripples of impact that we can't forget about. Again, we're not alone (laughs) in doing this. And we have an impact. So how do we want to choose to show up? And what do we want our impact to be? Feels like a powerful question to guide what we do every day. Yeah. Well, I want to throw a third question in there because this is actually a question that informs like most of my work. And I would say uh, to anybody listening that if you can, in every instance in your life, whether it's in a personal moment or uh, in a professional moment, uh, if you could just pause for a minute and ask yourself, how do I come from a place of love? What would it look like if I came from a place of love? Would it look differently than what is about to unfold? Or would it look differently than what's happening or what has happened? And, and you know, and I think that that's a really important question for us to ask. Because I think a lot of times we don't come from that place. We come from a place of reaction. We come from a place of fear. We come from a place of hurt. Um, and if we kind of just take a moment to pause and ask ourselves that, the response will look a lot different than the reaction does. I just had three different scenarios of things that are going on in my life in this very moment. And was just thinking, thank you for that reminder because every single one of them looks and feels different based on that question. Yeah. That's really, it's really profound. Yeah. And it's so simple because we've all experienced love in different forms, right? Mm. And we all know that we need it and that we want it and that we love to give it. Um, so I just, again, tend to the part of the garden that you can reach. Uh, it's so beautiful. So you've mentioned a few times that you are a mindfulness teacher. I know your story, probably not all of your story, but I would love to share with this community how you got to where you got to, because you and I share a corporate background. We both spent decades in the corporate world. And in this community, we've got rebel souls who are still in the corporate world fighting the good fight. We've got people like us who have departed and are, you know, having their own impact in the world. And we've got people who are in transition and doing the work. And so I would love for you to share what led you to being this master of modern life mindfulness and a self-care activist. And then I I hope this will be the thread that also leads us to talking about your book that's coming out. Wow. I mean, I I will try to give you a short version of this. I mean, I've I've been meditating for over two decades. I started meditating um, I don't want to say accidentally because really nothing's accidental, but, but for, for the, in light of this conversation, I really, it was not something that was like a planned thing. I wound up, I took a class as a graduate student with, uh, Bob Thurman, who is, happens to be Uma Thurman's dad, but actually is the foremost expert on like Tibetan Buddhism and on Buddhism in general and Eastern thought and philosophy. And so took a class with him and he is also the founder with uh, Philip Glass and Richard Beer and a few others uh, of Tibet House. Uh, and so, which preserves, by the way, the 
um, the culture and the teachings uh, of, of Tibetan culture and, and religion. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a physical space that's located on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And so I started to attend free meditation sessions at Tibet House. Uh, and that's how I met my, my core meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg, who's uh, really the mother of modern day mindfulness. Uh, and one of the founders of the oldest retreat center in uh, in this country. Um, and she impacted my life greatly because, number one, the first type of meditation that I was introduced to was Mental Bhavna, which is loving kindness meditation, uh, which deeply, deeply resonated with me uh, as an empath, as a person who like really like feels into everything, you know. Uh, so it wasn't just like about like sit with your breath for 20 minutes and, you know, count your breathing because that just like that kind of meditation is very difficult for me. It doesn't really work for me. Right. Um, or it works, I should say, but it's not as, uh, alluring. Um, and so basically, you know, I, I just started as a habit to meditate as a graduate student in the late nineties. And then, uh, eventually got married, had a child, and slowly, like with most things, you start to fall away from practice, right? Uh, because you're busy. You, you're you're a mom. You're you have a career. You're uh, you know thinking about what to make for dinner every night. Your life just looks completely different. And ironically, you need meditation more in that moment. But it's because so like, true, <laughs> it's suddenly like that's the first thing that can go is your self care, right? Because that's like. I have to take care of everybody else. And we forget we have to put that ox, proverbial oxygen mask on ourselves first before we go on to everyone else. And it wasn't really until, you know, this seminal moment in my life when uh, my son was a toddler, I was going through a divorce and divorces are never fun and they're never easy and they're incredibly painful. And I was living in a really, you know, just living in the same house, but apart from, from my ex. And it's, it's a toxic environment, even if it's a friendly environment, it's just not a pleasant place to be. Um, I lived that as well. Yeah. You work so hard and you're like, you know, at that point, I just kind of fell away from all the things that brought me joy. Um, other than, you know, to being a mom to my son. And one morning I woke up and I was blind. I lost my eyesight. I couldn't see anything. Uh, and I didn't know if I was going to get my vision back. Uh, I fortunately wound up at a really great uh, eye institute down in Miami called Baskin Palmer. And I was diagnosed with a chronic autoimmune condition called uveitis, which I was told was the leading cause of blindness in people of under 40. And at the time I was like in my late twenties or, you know, kind of 26, 27. So young, right. So young. And I was like, well, shit, like, does like now the countdown starts because you're already starting to think, well, first of all, am I going to get my eyes set back? Secondly, you know, now they're telling me that it's this chronic thing. So I'm going to have to be dealing with this for the rest of my life. And because there's no cure for it. And I may lose my vision again and again and again and again. So, and then, you know, maybe eventually forever. Right. So it, it was like this big wake up call. And I think that for so many people who have the seminal moment where you're thrown from the nest, you know, where there's this like radical thing that happens to you. Um, and, and that was really the, the moment for me, you know, one of the first moments was I was like, well, 
I need to now like switch things up. Like this is, I got to reclaim my time. It ended up kind of speeding things up with, with the divorce and um, just started to tend to myself. And I returned to the meditation cushion and I actually um, haven't ever let a day go by since then. Now I'm 44 uh, where I don't spend at least, you know, a portion of my day in meditation. And it doesn't always look pretty. Sometimes it was in a closet. Sometimes it was on a bathroom floor. Sometimes it's in a car, uh, wherever, whatever works, you know, in a, in a very real way, but, but it's always there and it's this portable, beautiful thing. Um, and so I didn't ever think I would become a meditation teacher. Uh, to be honest with you, I actually, started to teach meditation to my employees when I was the vice president of a public company in South Florida. And we were going through a rebranding, like literally the whole name. It wasn't just like the logo was changing, like the name of the company was changing everything. And so you can imagine like the amount of stress that, that, that has to do with, um, and we, my entire department were like falling like flies. Like they were literally like just dropping and like getting sick and people were just like just incredibly stressed out with all the deadlines and things that we had to accomplish in a very unrealistic time, time frame. And so I was like, you know, listen guys, let's, let's take a pause every week. We'll meet on, on Wednesdays in the conference room. And I'm going to guide you through meditation. And they were like, what? Like, what? And this was in the early 2000s. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> this was not when like Google was like, you know, like there, none of that like was really happening. And so I remember the CEO of our company or reported to was kind of like, man, you, you marketing people are really weird. Like, you know, like whatever, have at it, you know, as long as it's not like, as long as it's secular, it's fine. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally going to be secular. Don't worry. Like I won't, you know, it's not going to be a spiritual practice. It'll be just a mindfulness practice. And it really, really focus on the breath and visualizations, et cetera. And I started with just my department, uh, which was like, you know, a dozen people. And then people in the company started to hear about it. And suddenly we had like, you know, a hundred people show up on Wednesdays to come meditate in the conference room. And you realize just how stressed out people were, right? And so that sort of was the seed that was planted in me was like, okay, this is really interesting. Um, but, you know, I still, I had a fiduciary responsibility to the company, to my family, to everybody else. So head down. And I also had goals. I was a very goal-oriented person. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 I must climb ladder, break ceiling, have a corner office. And so you know, fast forward, I wound up uh, in a, the position with the title that I've always wanted, you know, as the president of a company. Our company had over 2,000 employees and in over a dozen markets around the country. I was traveling, I was making good money, and I was never more miserable than I'd ever been in my life. I was like, this is as good as it gets. Like, this is what I've spent two decades of my life working towards as a career. Like, I am just absolutely abjectly like miserable. I'm so miserable. And I tried as hard as I could to like lean into my practice to bring joy to everything that I did on a daily basis and to impact the lives of my individual employees and to empower them, especially the women that worked for our company, you know, who, who I knew like needed that extra kind of boost. Um, You know, I, I, I just became more and more miserable. And I, again, 
practicing meditation, one of the things that it does is it allows you to um, really be in tune with your physiological uh, happenings in your body, right? The biology of like, what is happening? What is my body trying to tell me? And so you tend to notice when you're, it doesn't have to be a full blown out like panic attack, but like if suddenly right before you go into every conference room, like you're sweating or you have heart palpitations or you're not sleeping as well as you used to, or, you know, on Sunday nights, you start feeling a certain way versus like on Fridays when you feel so. And so I started to kind of like take mental note of all of those things. And I realized like, I am not happy. It was very evident to the people who love me and, uh, you know, my, 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 my husband now, Jason and my son, Liam, that I was incredibly unhappy. And, um, I'll never forget this moment, Shelly. I was driving, uh, home from, from work. There was a huge accident on I-95 and, you know, my, my one hour commute became like a, like a two and a half, almost three hour commute home. And it was the middle of the work week. It was like a Wednesday, which made it even worse. And I remember coming home, I, I get home, my son's already like eating dinner in the kitchen, uh, got his pajamas on. And I just, you know, you walk in in those moments and you sort of bring everything in with you, right? You're like, yep. you're like, um, like pig pen from peanuts. Like you've got like the big, like, everything's following you. Yes. This, the, the, the cloud of like dust and like residue from the day. And you're just like this miserable wretch and you're walking in and you're like, Mah. Like, I just want to vent and complain about my day, even if it's to like a 12 year old, you know? And my son looked at me in that moment and he said, you know what the, you know, the best day of my life is going to be. And I thought he was going to say something like when I, when I get out of this joint or <laughs> when I go to college or whatever. And he said, when you quit that damn job and start taking your own advice. So and that was like a total like punch in the stomach from, from, you know, from an adolescent and you're just like, shit, wow. Okay. I got to sit with that one because this, this residue is now like starting to, to really taint everything, everything, yeah. you know, like, and um, yeah, so it, that was really an, an incredibly no powerful statement. And, and concurrently, what I will tell you is that because I was so desperate for community and I couldn't in my newer position, teach meditation at work, it just wasn't conducive to the environment wasn't. And my, my travel schedule, I, I started to just show up to the beach in Hollywood, Florida and just teach meditation. Um, and at first 12 girlfriends showed up, this was November of 2015. And those 12 girlfriends showed up the following week and brought friends who brought friends who brought friends. And really by May of that year, we had like a thousand people meditating the following year, meditating on the beach. So all this was kind of happening concurrently where the universe was telling me like, you need to be this meditation teacher. Look at all these people that are showing up for you when you show up. And I was more miserable in my job than I'd ever been. And so I just, you know, finally I had a friend and these are the Thelma and Louise. These are the Thelma to, to your Louise friends, you know, who are yes. like, let's jump together. Ride or die, baby. Yep. Die. And she basically was like, listen, if I hear you complain one more time about this job and you don't quit by X date, like you have lost your 
you've lost your your benefit of like my my ears because yeah. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Like do something about it. And so I love those friends. Can we just highlight that we all need those friends in our soul posse who call us on our bullshit. And we need to be those friends too. For and people. we need to be those friends. Yes. Friends. We need to show up for those friends as well. And she she just handed it to me. She was like, write a resignation letter, like post date it for whatever date you want. And so I did. I wrote it like I think in like May or something like that of that year. And I post dated it for August. And I actually wound up um resigning sometime in July. Like it was like a month before the letter was dated for. Because it was like, I needed that push. I need somebody to tell me like, you know, jump. Like, yes, you may not have a parachute. It's going to be scary as hell when you're, when you um, are jumping out and looking down, but then you'll realize that there is no ground. So there's no impact. Like you're, and you can enjoy the free fall. You can enjoy it. You can be a flying squirrel. You could be a, you know, a feather, a fluttering feather, or, you know, you could be a sack of cement, but you could. There's never going to be a bottom. So just enjoy the ride, you know, enjoy that ride. And that was, that was a beautiful thing. And then I just, I threw that match behind me and uh, into that gas pile of of the wreckage of my life previous to that. And I never looked back since, you know, and that was in the summer of 2016, right before the presidential election uh, in 2016. And that election actually really informed a lot of my work uh, going forward as an as an activist because I originally when I quit I intended to be a mindfulness teacher that went into corporate spaces and helped people be more productive and less stress at work etc. And after the election, I realized my time was better spent helping volunteers social justice and political organization Mm -hmm. workers uh, build resilience so that they could be in it for the long haul and fight the good fight uh, and show up for others and speak up for others and to help to kind of build this world that, that I want to be living in. Right. Yeah. How, let me ask you a question just to bring the two kind of the two stories together. So where are you with your product chronic autoimmune, your eyesight did. So that you obviously got that diagnosis before you left the corporate world. Oh, way before. Yeah. Way before. And so was some of that, like all of the stress that you were feeling, is that stress induced is, do you manage that through your mindfulness work? Like I think so many of us have these issues that crop up and we don't even assign them to like high levels of cortisol and stress and the fact that we're beating the shit out of ourselves. Yes. Yeah. That's a great question, Charlie. Thanks for bringing that up. Actually, I 100% attribute it to the stress that I was feeling. Again, physiologically being able to like feel into myself. I know that when I am in that, those moments of like peak stress, I tend to get flare-ups and the flare-ups, basically what my condition is, is my brain is telling my eye that there's an infection that isn't there. And so what happens when there's an infection in your body? White blood cells rush in. And so white blood cells keep rushing into both of my eyes. And eventually so many of them rush in that they become like engorged and then they have no way out because they're too big to leave. So they wind up just sitting around in my eye and eventually 
I start to see like a lava lamp, you know, it's like, a, and then eventually becomes a whiteout, not a blackout, but like white. Like imagine looking into like a vast expanse of snow and you can't believe yeah. it. And so that happens more like the peaks, the spikes of that happens. And it's, it's, it's directly correlated to the level of stress that I'm feeling in my life. And so absolutely there's that moment of, of, of realization that, wait a minute, I can self-regulate and I can, you know, use mindfulness-based stress reduction to, um, you know, kind of bring myself back, recalibrate sometimes once, sometimes many times throughout the day, especially if I'm going through some, some really tough, tough times or a tough period. Right. Um, and so MBSR for sure is a practice that has absolutely, I believe saved my eyesight. Like if somebody studied it and I tell this to my ophthalmologist, by the way, all the time, I'm like, because she's always impressed by like how, um, between treatments that I still have to this day, like how much, how far apart they are. I used to get them like every three months. And now I've gotten them to the point where like a year to 14 months is every time I have to have like a treatment in my eye. And so, and she's always super impressed with that. I'm like, you've got to look into this mindfulness thing. Like there's something to it. Right. And I wanted to bring you back to that because I think it's incredibly important. You are reminding us all that we're not just heads on sticks to be connected to our body and listen deeply and really get curious about the stuff that's happening. I was having nightmares. So many people get chronic illnesses and we realize that it's like, it's, it's a reaction to, (laughs) to the, the life we're living and it's not sustainable to go back to what we were saying earlier. Correct. No, you're hundred percent right. And it's, it's interesting. So like, there's two things. So mindfulness, you know, when, when you get quiet for a long, a long enough period of time, and I don't mean like for four hours, I mean, just like even consistently in like little tiny bits on a daily basis, the, the quieter you get, the louder things become. You start to hear what is going on in your brain and in your body, that's like off. So get quiet and things will get really loud. And the second thing, you know, is that I think that, you know, people oftentimes when, when they're first starting to meditate or when they used to come to the beach and like, you know, um, sort of almost want to give me like a disclaimer, like before we started meditation class, they would say, you know, I've tried to meditate. It's never worked for me. I can't get quiet. There's too much things happening in my brain and I can't stop myself from thinking. And I used to look at them and say, you know, well, you're in luck because that's not the purpose of meditation at all. You're a human being, you're alive. You have an average of 70,000 thoughts per day. You, even if you're in a coma, like you will still have probably like thoughts that are happening per day. And so, you know, that's not the purpose of meditation to clear your mind. You're never going to achieve that or be able to do that. The purpose of meditation. That's the myth. It is. That is the myth. And so to debunk that myth, you know, meditation is about learning to coexist with your thoughts and not being like a Labrador chasing a tennis ball where every single thought you have to like run after, you know, squirrel, tennis ball, like it's no, it's about allowing all that to be sort of this white noise that falls into the periphery. And then if you choose to wanting to like, if you want to hyper-focus on a specific thing or not hyper-focus on anything and allow this to be present and exist around you in your orbit, 
that's fine too. And just to gently remind yourself every time you, your mind drifts or wanders or you chase that tennis ball, that you are noticing that that's happening and you're bringing it back. And my meditation teacher, Sharon, always says, the meditation is actually in the return. That's the meditation. It's when you finally say like, wait a minute, I don't need that tennis ball right now. Let me just come back to the meditation. That's what meditation is. And ultimately the goal of meditation, which kind of brings it all back home, is to learn to respond instead of react. Because a reaction is an immediate, you know, it's a habitual immediate uh, response, like mechanism that we have to something that's happening in our life, right? And a response is a choice. A conscious choice. Conscious choice. You can stop, you can pause for even that matrix moment for a microsecond and say, go right or go left. Say yes or say no. You know, yell or take a deep breath. What do I do? And it's giving ourselves permission to take that beat to take that pause. I think it helps us. One thing I know from my own mindfulness practice, and you and I share a lot of the same history, like crazy job, crazy job, you know, climbing the rungs, you know, bigger titles, all the things you thought you wanted. And then you realize your success empty, not successful. And I realized like I was never slowing down. Like crazy busy and busy were badges of honor that I wore really proudly for a very long time, which is, you know, it's laughable to say now, but I want everybody listening to this, like your work is so valuable because it's a reminder that we have to slow down, right? To slow down. It's not sustainable. And we don't, we can't even check in with ourselves or know like that GPS that you were talking, you know, the the quote that I that I read from your social feed, like we have an internal GPS. We know the answers that we're often asking other people's opinions or advice on, right? We know these things and yet we're not slowing down and listening deeply. So those things aren't becoming loud, like you say. So just great reminder. So how does all of this tie to your book? Let's bring it home with sit down to rise up coming yeah. out in October, literally a week after this sucker's launching. So everybody listening to this, I am going to keep sending the link out for Shelly's book. Buy it. It'll be in your hands in the next week. It is... Well, Shelly, tell us about it. Like, What are we going to learn? Because I've already put in my pre-order. Well, thank you for that. Thanks yes. so much for promotion. So the subtitle of the book, Sit Down to Rise Up, is How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. And it's really about um, this journey from the me, which is the inner journey, inner work, to the we, which is the communal journey, right? Our, our, our own kind of immediate circle of influence to the us. So me to we to us. And the us is really social movements. It's how do we expand beyond just our immediate concentric circles and like the ripples of impact, the ROI we talk about, right? How do we continue to expand out those ripples um, so that they are just really all-encompassing and and making huge waves? It's a three three parts to it, right? There's like memoir, a lot of memoir, personal stories. Uh, there's that aspect to it. Uh, and then there's an aspect to it that is um, very much uh, a manifesto 
um, and, and really digging into the history of a lot of the concepts that I want to sort of debunk as it pertains to things like mutual aid and self-care, which we talked about today. The third part is really how to. So it's really, I'm a very big fan of, of not just telling people like, you really need to be in the present moment, but like, okay, great. That makes sense. How? How can I be in the present moment? Like, show yeah. me. Give me some tangible, practical, tactile tools that I can hold on to and that I can incorporate into my life the way my life is today, right? And so I think back to those moments that I was the busiest and that I was juggling 15,000 things at once and, and probably wearing that badge of like, I am like, you know, the multitasker of, of the universe. Extraordinaire, right. Totally. So I think about whenever I write anything that is like kind of a how-to or here's a step-by-step, I think about how would I write it so that the version of me, that version of me would actually read it and be like, oh, okay, this makes sense to me. Let me incorporate that into my life, you know? So so I hope that all of those sort of practices and, and tips and tools um, definitely resonate and land with people. But I also hope that my personal story and my journey, um, which I get into in a lot more detail um, in the book, inspires people and, and helps them recognize that we're not broken, that the world doesn't need another self-help course. All we need to do is show up. What's one juicy nugget from the book, like a practical tip? What from your book would be super helpful for us? Well, I'm a really big fan of, especially being somebody, and you'll relate to this, who my entire life was like a type A personality and very goal oriented, right? Like this is the goal. These are the steps to meet the goal. Uh, And then you get there and you feel like half empty because you're like, well, I'm here, you know? Um, And so I have completely scrapped the goal centered life. Uh, And this has been an exfoliation, if you will. So one of the practical things that I talk about in a chapter, uh, one of the chapters called If Only for Today is a practice that I have to help center my life on a daily basis around intentions. And an intention is an abstract word that sometimes feels very unattainable. And certainly, again, has been a commodity now because you see it on like shirts and hats and (laughs) stones that you put on your desk that say things like happy and patient and love and peace and all these great words that like, yeah, of course I want to be kind and grateful and happy and all these things, but it's like, where's the roadmap? Like, how do I get there? You know, give me that practical roadmap. And so for me, everything is about sort of whittling things down to incremental steps, micro practices, micro habits. Um, and the, the thing that I think about on a daily basis is I just kind of latch onto one intention word. And I think of, let's say the word kindness and the phrase, you know, if only for today, And then I think about this every morning, by the way, I think, what is the intention? What intention would serve me best to show up in the world the way I want to show up today, Mm -hmm. if only for today? And so some days the word is different every day. And sometimes it's the same word for two weeks. And sometimes, you know, it's a word that like kind of hits you from nowhere. And you're like, where the hell? I didn't even know I knew that word. Like, let me look this up. What does it even mean? But it's, it's a word that I think about first thing in the morning, I wake up, open my eyes, and it's the first thing I think about. And then I basically, throughout the day, throughout every single thing that I do that day, whether I'm standing in line and there's a price check, 
or somebody cuts me off in traffic or, you know, I'm annoyed with somebody on the phone or I'm, I'm asking myself a question like, you know, am I really even making an impact in the world? And I'm starting to, to like self-doubt myself. I think about, okay, if only for today, I was going to show up with kindness as it pertained to traffic. What would that look like? As it pertained to standing in this line, what would that look like? As it pertained to negative self-talk, what would that look like? And so it kind of brings it back. And that those are those micro moments where, like you said, just simply asking, how do I come from a place of love? Yeah. Just reframes things for you. So I get into like very, a very specific step-by-step guide in that chapter as to like how that can be in a practice that's so easily incorporated into your day, literally works in parallel with your day. It doesn't require for you to take any breaks or do anything differently. It just requires for you to like add a little micro step, a few seconds of a question, a pause throughout your day and eventually becomes habitual. But the way that it changes the trajectory uh, and what you center your life around, if only for today, because tomorrow's mm-hmm. another day, right? Tomorrow's another day. It could be another word. Even if you failed, quote unquote, at something today, tomorrow's another day. And so... Hit the reset button. Totally. Yeah. I love that. It, it From the second we wake up, it yeah. shifts our mindset. Yeah. Completely. And our mindset is everything, right? It is. It's how we choose to go through the rest of the day. And I love that because it forces us to be present and to not make some massive commitment because that to me has always been the challenge with like New Year's resolutions and all these big shit. It's like, oh, don't ask me to say what I'm going to do for the next 365 days. I'm not capable of doing that, right? But ask me how I can show up today. Oh, I can do that, right? Totally. Suggestible. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. I can't wait to get more of the yummies from the book. So... I could ask you a million zillion more questions. Um, I do want to put a little plug in for the work that you and Justin do together. Yes. Because it's such powerful work. And I have had Justin on the podcast. I've talked about the work that you guys do, but I want to say again, so Shelly and Justin work together to run a course, a live experience called the Liberation Experience. And if I'm right, are you guys also working on a little project? Is it a book project? Are we allowed to talk about that? Yes, I can definitely talk about it. So Justin and I are co-authoring a book based on the liberation experience, uh, which will hopefully be out uh, at the end of 2022. So a year from now. Um, And very exciting. And it really um, is taking a lot of the lessons and the principles that we teach in the liberation experience um, and putting it on paper so that it can serve as, um, I, I like to call it a prerequisite to anti-racism work. Um, because for me, you know, as a white woman, I have read how to be an anti-racist and cast, and I've seen all the documentaries. And I believe that I was definitely showing up and doing the work long before, you know, George Floyd was murdered. Um, but I've certainly learned a lot since then as well, right? But I think for a lot of other individuals that I speak to, um, they, you know, they read the books, they take the courses, and then 
they kind of ponder and they're like, well, what do we do now? Like, what do I do besides feel shame? Which is fine. It's natural, of course. But what do I do now to actually, how do I show up with this new information that I now have that I'm processing? Um, And it's not just a course for, for white people. It's a course for everyone. Because the reality is, is that, you know, even as Justin says, you know, even individuals that are, um, that are black that are taking our, our, our course have a lot of shame and they have a lot of black doubt and they've got a lot of other issues that we're dealing with. So what we do is we sort of say, look, before you can show up in these ways to like the way you want to show up, right. Or as you're showing up, I should say, you need to really start to dig into your intergenerational trauma that you might have or do some deep dives into shadow work, really understand um, how to have difficult conversations, how to call people forward instead of calling people out. You know, that those are the most important Mm. tenets. We give you like these pillars that are incredibly important and foundational over the course of eight weeks that then allow you to, throughout your journey, and the way you decide that you want to show up with this newfound information, you know, whether it's to do a project in your community, whether it's to just have conversations with certain people in your family that you otherwise avoided all the time because you didn't want to have those difficult conversations, you know, but it, it gives you the tools to be able to, to create those shifts and to throw those pebbles from a real pebbles in the pond. I love it. And so you're essentially giving us the playbook that comes yeah. on the back of that live experience. Oh, that's amazing. I love that you guys are doing that work. And for anyone who hasn't listened to the Justin Michael Williams episode of Rebel Souls, go back and do a double header, Shelly Tagelski and Justin Michael Williams, and you'll understand why they're working together and just the the beautiful mashup of your work. And I'm so excited that it's leading to a second yeah. book for both of you because I'm a few, huge fan of Stay Woke, Justin's book. Yes. And I can already tell that yours is going to be yet another. I, I, I always decide like what actually gets to go on the bedside table because it's like a privileged bunch. <laughs> and Justin's <laughs> on the bedside table and I suspect that Sit Down to Rise Up is going to be right next to it. I'm so excited to read it. Awesome. Yeah. And maybe next year we'll, we'll both be on and then that'll be like our trifecta on this podcast. Yes. I would love that as we, as you guys get closer to that book, book coming out into the world, I am, I'm signing up for that right now. We're going to make that happen. I look forward to it in the meantime, now that everybody has fallen in love with you and your work and you've inspired, you've inspired all of us. How can they find you? Where can they follow you? So I'm on Instagram as Mindful Skater Girl, and uh, I am on Facebook as uh, Shelly, without the E, S-H-E-L-L-Y, Meditation. Uh, so those are the two best places to find me. You can always go to ShellyTigelski.com if you're having trouble figuring out how to spell it. Just Google Shelly, T-Y-G, and it'll come up. And we'll put it in the show notes to make it easier for everybody. Yes, yes. But that's the best way to find me. Uh, I always list all my uh, upcoming workshops, courses. Um, If you're in New York City on October 13th, uh, come to the book launch at the 92nd Street Y. I'll be in conversation with uh, 
actress and activist Deborah, Deborah Messing, and also with the very inspirational CEO of Thrive and former CEO of uh, the Huffington Post, Ariana Huffington. So you oh. can join for free at the 92nd Street Y. You just have to grab your tickets before they sell out. Oh, that's amazing. Ariana is one of those people who sits on my personal board of directors. I talk about her in my book as somebody who's... Um, I think she would appreciate Soulbatical and the work. So that's awesome. I wish I was in New York on October 13th. I might have to plan a trip. So we, we shall see. Thank you so much for spending this time, Shelly. This has been incredible. It's always good to connect with you. And I really just appreciate you sharing your soul and your work and your ripples of impact with this community. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylbatical.com and follow me at sylbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for? <laughs>